Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything. Food, lifestyle, mental patterns, environment in which you live and work, medical treatments, pharmaceuticals, nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine, here with Fleur Larson, an old friend and a seasoned organizational development and equity consultant with a background in education and counseling. Her goal is to bring her 20 years of experience to move the social structures and companies and organizations from a cycle of putting out fires to a movement based in lasting equity and empowerment. Her commitment is to social justice at the organizational level and includes deep insights into power, privilege, liberation work, and community building. Fleur ran a training called Habits and Practices of White Women Gatekeepers, the first in a three-part series on racial equity leadership. This was a public training accessible to all, but she also does organizational-focused work like with HR and C-Suite nationally. You can find more about her at her work at www.fleurlarsenfacilitation.com. Fleur is F-L-E-U-R. Larson is L-A-R-S-E-N. We have her on our show today because we know the impact of social and political factors on our neurology and our global health. If we're going to optimize our systems, we really have to optimize them at all levels, which means we have to know about the secret underpinnings of what is actually happening in our daily relationships. Welcome, Fleur. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Fleur, I want to thank you for being here and recognize that today is June 2nd, 2020, and we initially recorded the podcast that everybody's about to hear on March 4th, 2020. And when we recorded this podcast initially, it was before George Floyd, it was before coronavirus really had hit. It was the next week that Seattle was shut down, and at that time, people were not thinking well about racism. They weren't thinking much about racism. And so I wanted to wait until a different time to focus on this podcast and release it. And unfortunately, we've had an acute trigger in the last seven days of protests across the country. And so this seems like the perfect time to release this, which is unfortunate, but I think true. Here is, in the beginning of this podcast, we'll do a little bit of an update, kind of the acute things that are on people's mind. But some truths that we know are that racism is an underlying current, which has been going on for hundreds of years in this country since before even America's inception. And it will continue on past when these protests die down, hopefully in a changed form. So everything that we talk about further on, everything we originally talked about is still incredibly relevant. But I wanted to address some of the acute questions that I think are on people's minds emergently. And so we've had you back for a little bit of an update here. This podcast is intentionally directed towards our white friends out there who are struggling as they see this information and trying to figure out how to understand it, how to think of their own role in this and what they can possibly do to help contribute to positive change. To our family, friends, and patients of color, I'll use the words of my friend and Rabbi David Bassier, who says, we condemn white supremacy and all forms of state violence. We stand with you in your righteous anger, your grief, and your exhaustion. We stand with you as you seek justice and find rest. Do you feel like the white community is waking up more in this time than in other times? That's interesting. I mean, some white folks have been in the movement building and fighting for liberation and justice for a long time. And I think like with any human behavior that's needed to change, things have to get bad enough before you're willing to do something. And right now things are really bad. And so people are paying attention in a way that they weren't before. You know, we have Colin Kaepernick started taking a knee years ago, a few years ago, and, you know, he was criticized for protesting in the wrong kind of way. And um, there's even still now folks who are like, well, wait, now, now people are protesting in the streets and that's the wrong way. And so I think either way you look at it, there's, there's people who are not going to be in alignment with this or have a criticism. And for the most part, because there's so much trauma and so much pain happening. And we have social media in a way that we haven't before where people can get information that's really real time and really devastating and heartbreaking that more people are able to connect to it. Especially in particular white folks, because we are talking about racism, where the privilege of being white means we don't feel the impacts of racism on the daily level in the same way. Um, Our communities are not targeted for destruction in the same way that black and brown bodies and communities are. Some of the questions that I've heard are from white folks who are noticing this and who are feeling some acute heartache and some acute horror, and they're trying to figure out how to respond now without feeling, and one person put it as, how do I not just be a trite white girl? 
You know, I think with feelings, they're meant to be felt, and we also get to move into thoughtful action. Really, the best thing to do is to take information and take the direction of folks who've already been leading this work. And so being willing and joining and saying, I'm here, I'm ready to be of service, and then really following what other folks recommend. And you might have your feelings. You know, you might feel that way because, um, you know, I was on a call with a client the other day. She really was like, I can't believe I'm just now feeling this outrage and heartbreak. Mm -hmm. So the waking up does come with some kind of reality that police violence has been happening for a long time. And in fact, you know, police is even having more and more of a militaristic presence and their budgets are more bigger and bigger. And so this isn't all of a sudden a problem. It's been a problem, right? And so whatever feelings you have about now being awake to the current situation and the actual realities are fine to have and feel them and move into a thoughtful action anyway. How would a person start moving into thoughtful action? It seems like the common start is to post something on social media. And then what? When we're trying something we haven't done before, we might do things that are less impactful or genuine or authentic. So social media is but one tool or one avenue. It is not the one. And so some of what we're seeing a lot of is performative allyship. You know, companies are putting out statements, yet their track record for hiring people of color or being an inclusive actual culture or being able to retain folks or advancing them is very, very, you know, they're not, they haven't done those things, right? But they're putting out these statements so that everyone can be on board with it. So it's useful in some ways that folks are trying something, but it's actually, you have to back it up with real integrity, really. So I think one of the biggest things, and I have a list of folks that people can follow, is really educate yourself, right? So if you feel helpless, educate yourself and really diversify your news stream. That's like one of the biggest things, because as we know, like what is truth anymore, right? Like that has never been called into question in the way it is now um, before. And so what's real is that there are multiple truths and that folks on the streets are having one experience and and the media is reporting it as a certain type of experience, right? Namely calling it rioting and looting. Um, when we have a majority of peaceful protesters who are, you know, for instance, being fired upon by the police by tear, with tear gas um, when they're really just peacefully protesting. So the truth and the threat to our like actual right to protest and the freedom of speech is, at, is seriously a threat right now. And so being able to, you know, start by learning and doing, really doing your own research. Um, I think there's a little bit of the helplessness feeling immobilized people and there's a lot of overwhelm and there's a lot of heartbreak. So all of those are feelings that you know you can be kind of stuck in and not know where to go. Some people to follow, Rachel Cargill, Nikita Oliver, you asked about parents and parents with white kids. The Conscious Kid is a phenomenal resource and they put out a lot of useful information. Future for Us is a phenomenal platform for women of color, advancing women of color in the workplace. Intentional List is a list of POC and women-owned businesses. So you can really support people with your money in your pocketbook and moving money to move power. We know that black and brown businesses are being impacted disproportionately in the COVID era. Um, so really putting our money there is useful. Democracy Now! is a phenomenal news source. Might be controversial for some folks, but it just really is, you know, one of the key things is to diversify where you get your information. I think one of the most important things is to really like take it upon yourself to educate yourself and not wait for, for someone else to um, be your guide in this. To summarize what I'm hearing, the first thing is the feelings that come up, the horror, the shock, the awakening, the heartbreak, the anger. Um, those are all feelings that we... If we are just thinking this now, if we are not people of color who have been exposed or experienced this for you know the extent of our lives, if we're just realizing that this might be a problem or this is a problem, or even like Rush Limbaugh was with watching the video of George Floyd saying... Cops, I support you 100,000%, but I can't figure out how to justify this. So if we're just waking up, then those are feelings that we need to be responsible for feeling all the way till the end and taking care of and not putting those on our black and brown friends as part of their responsibility to care for us. The second piece is that looking around for education to understand the extent of this issue and what role we might play in it or what role we might play in terms of perpetuating it or in terms of reversing it or resolving it. And then the third thing that we can do in terms of education is follow the resources and then join organizations and follow leadership for people who have already been doing this in the field so that we can kind of join the train that's already got some steam. 
I have a young son. We are, lots of us are having babies or pregnant or have small children. And so how do we address this with small white children who may not have already been exposed to this? One of the most important things for white parents of white kids to do is to actually talk about things. And there's resources about age and developmentally appropriate kind of language and what to really say as your child grows. So again, the conscious kid has, there's like really like, zero to four, you know, or zero to two, you know, so very step-by-step in terms of developmentally appropriate information. And I think the other piece here is that a lot of folks were raised with the like, you know, don't see color, right? Was the respectful, thoughtful way to be. And what we know is that that was really made made someone's experience invisible. So actually go ahead and name like, oh, this is a black person. We are white people, like naming, naming what is. And young people are children in particular are great at just saying whatever it is they see. And sometimes, you know, I've had some parents, white moms in particular, who I've coached around where they get all embarrassed when their child asks a question that they were raised with was inappropriate, especially if it stepped outside of the don't see color, don't talk about color, rude and disrespectful. And I think, one, we have to unlearn whatever information we got that was not useful. And then with our kids, it's really useful to talk about lots of things in a really thoughtful way. And that'll take practice and you'll likely mess up and it'll be weird or um, but the beautiful thing about young people is they ask great questions and it's fine if your answer is I don't know but let's go find out and and not being afraid to like really talk about people are hurting people right now and it falls along the color of their skin and you know language like that um, young people really understand justice actually very very well Um, the complexities and the language they don't have um, or the history but um, they actually understand what is how to treat someone thoughtfully really well it's always been interesting to me to watch my son who is white and now five years old as he was in preschool he was in a very diverse preschool as adults we describe people like by their race oh the white girl the black girl the Italian or the you know whatever it is Um, so I've been always watching for when he describes kids at school and if and when he starts by race and he actually never picks race. It's always like the girl wearing the pink sweater or the boy wearing the pink sweater, you know, whatever it is. It's always something, it's always an attribute on them. And it's fascinating to me that race actually doesn't come up for him. It may change at some point or, you know, he may be trained into something different by culture, but I always watch for it and it always surprises me. Yeah. And that would be interesting too, to then bring it up and say, there's also some other things about this person that might shape their experience that's different than ours. And we do talk about those things because I think talking to children about police and about expectations of police, especially in this era, can be really challenging because our assumptions, our white children's assumptions of police are going to be very different or maybe very different than Black kids' associations of police and how in terms of the role that police have played in our neighborhoods. One of the ways we describe that relationship is that police are here to help and that sometimes they have a clear mind and that sometimes they have a confused mind. And you don't know when you approach a policeman if he or she is going to have a clear or a confused mind. If you need help and you need to approach a policeman, you need to approach and ask your question, but understand that you might get a clear mind or a confused mind answer and that you need to adjust based on that. And that police may have clear minds or confused minds based on who they think they're looking at. You know, I'm thinking about Amy Cooper, what messages she got, I got, you got, right? Mm -hmm. White women that no matter what, the police are here to protect me. And the entitlement and that I can weaponize that, right? She was weaponizing that with the person under the kind of pretense of fear, which we know we can really look at her reactions. Uh, She was stepping closer to the person she was supposedly afraid of, which is an odd thing to do, right? So there's all this stuff inside of there and and like immediately, and she knew to say all the keywords, a black man is here threatening me, I'm alone in the woods. And that's the way, you know, really looking at the way that white women have been socialized to be kind of coddled, right, in some ways, and that the police will always protect you of Emmett Till, right? And she later basically recanted and said, he actually never did whistle at me. But even that thing that the threat of him whistling at her was grounds for him to be murdered. So we're looking at what's happening now today. It's like, okay, 
this is just the current day's version of this, right? And the people, the fact that people like can't stand it anymore. They can't stand to have their communities murdered. So they're going to protest, right? And I do want to make something clear about this piece about rioting and looting. On the one hand, we need to really be clear that people are more important than property. So we have to not get that confused. Now, is it okay for people to smash windows and riot, all these things? What's true is that most social advancements, most social movements, people asked nicely for a long time and no one did anything. The powers that be are not going to be like, oh, you asked me nicely for your, you want these rights? Well, let me just give them to you. That's never happened in the history of the world. (laughs) Never gone down that way. And, you know, the whitewashing of MLK, when he was murdered, he was the most hated man in the U.S., right? Like, we have to be really clear that that people don't want to be murdered anymore. So they're willing to do whatever is necessary. And you get to look at yourself. What would you be willing to do so that you and your community were not killed? And the truth is, is that these were all peaceful protests. And then either, you know, for instance, in Seattle, Mayor Durkin issued a, you know, closure at 5 p.m. And all of the transit was closed downtown. So people actually couldn't leave, even if they wanted to. They had to walk all the way, you know. So it was actually quite a setup. And this is what, you know, happened in WTO protests and all these other ones where then the police have trapped protesters downtown, firing tear gas at them, and then making all the arrests, right? Like, it's a strategy. And we saw, and we have lots of footage and, you know, lots of documentation of white supremacists, white men coming in and infiltrating and then starting all of the the vandalism and smashing. Mm-hmm. That's why if you diversify your news stream, you'll be able to get more of this kind of information to see, see what happened. When we're talking about looting, one thing to think about who's actually doing this, you know, and in some ways, if Trump wants to go after these people who are infiltrating these people, these peaceful protests, then I'm sure that the people at the peaceful protests would appreciate some support in having these infiltrators be removed. We had white men with machine guns uh, protesting at the Capitol, right, of different places, and nothing happened to them. And so just really looking at, like, this is not a free democracy. We are not in a free democracy. Could you say something about how the looters maybe hurt businesses and then businesses get mad at looters, but the people who have instituted this system of powerlessness, both for small businesses as well as for people who resort to looting. Can you talk about how they stay out of the fray? They stay silent. They stay innocent in all of this. Yeah. Well, just to clarify, I mean, I think then, you know, the businesses get upset at the protesters who are not necessarily the same folks doing the looting. Part of it is needing to pull big picture. Where has most of the actual looting come from? Well, the 1% got bailed out during COVID. Small businesses and struggling people did not get bailed out. So we want to pull really big picture and look at actual, you know, looting and taking from people has occurred at the government level um, and only benefited the really, really rich, right? And the really, really big companies. And so folks are doing whatever they need to do so that they can get their voice heard. It's not working to say, we need different policies, we need different people in office, we need really mass reform. And the stronghold on our economy has really just been benefiting the top 1% or people with, you know, lots and lots of wealth. And so additionally, that like, we're on stolen land in that sense, right? In the sense of like, folks came here and just like took the land from Native folks. So looting has been happening for a long time, and it's only benefited those in power. Okay, so that was our update. Let's go ahead and get back to the pre-recorded program from the first week of March, prior the last seven days of protest and coronavirus. You're a white woman. Mm-hmm. I'm a white woman. I'm a white Jewish woman, so yeah. I have like secret feelings, but you know, the world <laughs> sees me as white. And what are things that we think or think we know that we actually might not be knowing about how things actually happen? Does mm-hmm. that make any sense what mm-hmm. I just said? Yeah, I, I start with the premise that people are good people, mm-hmm. right? And that you're a good person, I'm a good person. And what's also true is that we are good people who have bias, right? <laughs> Both are true. And I think that that is, and Robin D'Angelo does a lot of work on this, the good, bad, right, wrong binary. Mm-hmm. But I'm a good person, so therefore I must not be racist or have bias. Mm-hmm. Or I'm a good person, so my intentions, that's the whole intent versus impact kind of conversation. Well, my intentions should override the impact that happened. 
So as white people who have walked through the world with white privilege and have generations of privilege from it, we are also, you know, female identified, female socialized folks who experience sexism. So there's this intersection here where two things are happening. We are perpetrators of oppression and we also are the targets of oppression. And I think a lot of the work is to name and notice that and then peel them apart and spend some time in, in each kind of inner street that's intersecting. So I find for me, I'm more effective when I do my healing work around the impacts of sexism on my life so that I can show up in service to racial equity even better and more authentically. If we're going to pull this apart, this intention versus impact, what does that mean? I mean, it seems yeah. obvious what it means, but what does that look like in daily life? Well, I think what's the other thing, so we're good people, we have bias, and we make mistakes. Like those are, it's always happening. And so I think some of privilege is, is the being oblivious to your mistakes. I mean, that's a part of privilege is you don't have to notice the impacts. You don't have to live with the consequences and you don't have to live with the limitations of you are on the benefiting side of oppression. Intentions, especially in an area here in the Pacific Northwest, you've lived here for a long time. I grew up here. I grew, grew up in Queen Anne and Ballard. I went to like private school. All the grooming I got was around the social contract we have here of being polite. And that as if it's enough to be polite and that and my intentions, well, they were good intentions. So that should be enough to um, not have to be accountable for my impact. You know, and it's a, kind of a cheesy example, but that thing of like when you rear end someone's car, like I didn't mean to rear end your car. I didn't intend to rear your car, but I need to like tend to the impact. I got to get out, see if you're okay, exchange, you know, like full circle, like close the loop there and be accountable for my impact. That one is an easier example where we mostly people would be like, yeah, you should do that. And when we're talking about like racial equity, white folks who especially think of themselves as good people, especially if you think of yourself as a, like a liberal progressive and in our bubble of King County, there is that kind of idea that that's how we are. Although our last elections show us some different story about the way people voted. We're not walking our talk. It's like a matter of integrity. We think of ourselves as one thing, but then we actually have this other thing happening. And then when that's pointed out to us, a lot of Robin D'Angelo's work around white fragility, the fragility to even hear that I might have had a bad impact. And it might be because of my bias that I think I don't have. That's about racism. And so that kind of like preposterous thought, like how dare you even suggest that I could have done that and hiding behind like civility politics and tone policing and well, they were just overreacting or, you know, like all the things that people say that are defense mechanisms to actually feel accountable for what you just did. And even if you didn't mean to, it doesn't matter if you didn't mean to, right? And most of us aren't meaning to. And that thing of like holding that, I'm a good person who has bias and sometimes making mistakes. And there's this pretending as if we're not already making mistakes all the time about anything, let alone like racial equity or things we really care about around like our progressive politics, for instance, or just or policy and caring about people. In the news lately, we've had lots of examples of people saying things that have come across as racist. Mm. And then the big question seems to always focus on, is the person a racist or not? Yeah. What's that all about? How do we pull it? That doesn't yeah. seem like the right question, but why do we always ask that question? Yeah, and I think it's analogous to what's happening with Me Too, is if there are some bad men who have done sexist, you know, sexual harassment, and all the other men are all good men. And I think it's that thing of it's more like the water we're swimming in. Like, no one escaped learning racism as a white person. And I think, again, going to place, like, in this region, we think of ourselves as progressive liberal white people, and the bad white people are in the South, mm -hmm. right? Or the bad white people are those that, you know, voted for Trump. They're the bad white people, and I'm a good white person. And that thing of really, it's just sort of like, you know, I, make, I went to Evergreen, you went to Evergreen, mm -hmm. so Olympia Beer, mm -hmm. the motto of Olympia Beer is it's the water, and the same is true for racism. It's just in, <laughs> it's the, in water, the water, right? Yep. Um, and so really that thing of like asking, does the fish know it's wet? We're just swimming around in our normal. And we were socialized by really well-intentioned, loving white people, like our parents, our caregivers, our teachers, who were also socialized by really well-intentioned, loving white people. The textbooks were written by white folks who were written, who were taught by white people. And that is what it's a setup. So we were given select information about history. We were given funny information about how to treat another human. And it's all often really 
really subtle, especially here in this region. Although I don't want to say it's all subtle because there's a lot of overt racism here as well. So I don't want to set that up. But I think the hardest part, because we're, we have such passive aggressive communication norms, it's really hard to even pinpoint. Sometimes I feel like it's like, was that racist? So the inside of that question, so say we say inside of that question, well, are they a racist or not? It's like, well, what they said, it's like slippery. It's like hard to pinpoint. And you're like, well, if we're even wondering, then we can probably go with, well, probably because no one got a lot of information about how not to be racist. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, I feel like the way it lands here is like when you crack an egg in a bowl and then a piece of the shell falls in and you're trying to get it and you're trying to pinpoint it, but we can't quite nail it down. Yeah. Like that's, it's kind of slippery here. And I have colleagues who, colleagues of color, in particular black folks who, you know, Washington, Oregon um, were set up originally as white nation states. And the racist history on the books is really atrocious. And some of the things are still on the books for both states. But anyway, my couple colleagues have moved away and said, I will opt for the racism in the South because I know where people stand. I know what they think of me. I'm not wondering. And here there's a lack of like showing your cards. And so they people, we hide behind, well, I didn't say it like that, or I didn't mean it like that, or you took it the wrong way, or what I said was da-da-da. And it's like this veneer of pretense and pretending. And we all kind of collude with it because that's like the social waters we're swimming in here. And there's the lack of like really just being more authentic and honest, which is authentic and honest about our mistakes. Like, oh, I said that. I didn't mean to. Whoops. You know, it's way easier and cleaner just to own it and then apologize and then move on. You know, there's a, a repair and amends that usually is useful to have in there. But the worst thing to do when someone tells you that you offended them is to say, no, I didn't. Right. Because who's to say, right? Like if they experienced it that way, then they experienced that way. That also is not to say like, oh, well, that was just their experience and it's a one off. But this thing of like, well, hmm, what am I not seeing in this situation? And part of privilege are like blinders. So I can't, it's like, you know, cotton in my ears and cataracts over my eyes. And like, you know, I just can't see clearly because of the way that oppression has socialized us as white folks. And then again, in particular in this region, the way the particular flavor here means that, you know, again, I don't think it's a coincidence that Robin D'Angelo's body of work started here. She lives here. It's certainly true of white folks across, especially in the United States, around white fragility, the like the lack of tolerance and lack of humility to even entertain or have someone dare to suggest that I might have said something that might be slightly biased or racist, right? Because I like drive a Subaru, I bring my cloth bag, I go to PCC, I go to the farmer's market. <laughs> yeah, like I think of myself as a good person and those are not mutually exclusive, but then we're really set up to be in that binary. What I'm hearing is that when we focus on the question, are they a racist? We're kind of missing the point about we're looking for what their intention is. Is their intention to hurt people or is their intention to put one community down and kind of exalt another? Mm-hmm. But really the question, our focus really needs to be more on our impact. What do we do? If you bump the car, you have to take responsibility for it. And sometimes when you bump the car, like you're looking at your phone or you're doing something else, like you do feel badly about yourself. So mm-hmm. how do we go about our day kind of not stepping on eggshells how do we go about our day and face racism or sexism or any of the oppressions you know for against uh, sexuality or gender or ableism or ability or all these other kind Mm -hmm. of ways Mm -hmm. that we can offend or hurt people how do we face that and just not feel shitty about it i mean i think one thing that's useful to know is it's a setup right it's a setup we've been set up to not know about how another human's experience is mm-hmm. and it's a setup and that you know this piece of humility it's like i can't know things about all people and so to then be surprised that I upset someone would be presupposing that I should have already known that. You know, it's like, it's understandable to feel bad. And yet guilt and shame are not useful places to stay because they're often like they suck up all the oxygen or then people go away and like throw their hands up in the air. Like I can't do anything then. Or we have to have a different kind of creative thinking if like that's all that they can come up with. I mean, I think it's the biggest thing. And like I said earlier to you when we're, before we were talking is that I don't feel guilty or bad about being white or anything like that. I do feel heartbreak at the state of the world. I do feel like anger at like the injustice that happens. 
And those, that's a distinction from guilt and shame. And I used to, I used to be like, oh my God, like, ah, you know, all wrapped up in my head. Like, did I do this thing or does someone so not like me? And quite honestly, a lot of times, you know, I used to work at a girl's middle school and the parallels to the social anxiety that happens in middle school, right, is happening at the adult level. We're just like better at pretending about it, <laughs> right? Yes. You know, how, where is the inner sixth grader still running the show about wanting to be liked, not wanting to, you know, public humiliation is the greatest fear. And that's the number one thing I hear from white folks is, I just don't want to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So terrified of saying anything, which then means things are happening and you're not taking a stand or you're not saying what you think. And it's not that you have to have like the perfect thing to say or like the right dissertation or the right words. It could really be as small as like, whoa, I'm unclear about what's going on right now. Right. If you think like often like people will talk about a situation like in a meeting and you're like, I think and it's a meeting with multiracial folks. Right. White folks and people of color. There's also hierarchy usually like there's power or there's, you know, positional power and something will happen. And a lot of this is a practice of trusting your gut. Like, oh, there's something funny going on. I don't know what it is, but even just saying anything is better than nothing. Right. There's a saying of like white silence is violence. And so part of privilege is not having to say anything. Part of privilege is staying comfortable. And again, that's where this region um, really has a big task ahead of itself around, we don't even talk about things directly about low stakes things, let alone something as high charge and high impact as racism where people's lives are like hugely impacted. And so this thing of like thinking of ourselves as good people, yet when we're called forward, we don't show up. There's definitely aspects of fear around that. You know, the fear even like being a sixth grader and standing up for a buddy can be scary. What do we do if we're afraid to offend someone or if we're afraid to say anything or if we're afraid that we'll say the wrong thing? What do we do with all that fear that we experience, especially as white women who are already potentially challenged by sexism in the workplace, say, Mm -hmm. we may already be at a disadvantage. What do we do with all the fear that we feel in trying to figure this out? the first place to start is rooting this in relationship. This is, you know, it's not an intellectual thought experiment and it's really about connection. So connection to ourself, noticing, oh my God, I'm triggered. I, I can't think right now or whatever the feelings that are coming up or, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed or whatever. And then connecting to another human and the, none of this can happen in isolation. We can't try to live our values in this like experimental place or in theory place or, you know, it has to be in connection. So just yesterday, being with the habits and practices of white women gatekeepers, one of the key things we worked on in the morning with this group of 25 white women who, this is a training series that my colleague Michelle Justison and I have been hosting for over a year now, and our colleagues of color have asked us to do this work. And so we really, we are in accountable relationships. And accountability really, for me, looks like a feedback loop. Understanding that power and privilege has set it up so that it is useful for me to be in community and connection with them. And ask them, what do you want me to work on? What would be useful? If you could tell a group of white women how to show up for you in in true allyship, what would you want that to be? And so we take that list of things and spend a couple days with white women dedicated to this. So yesterday was with a group of 25, and one of the biggest focuses was on connection to each other, the way white women are socialized. And I'll say white women just because that's my experience, and I think we can loosely extend it to women in general around gossip, triangulation, and undermining each other. So the way we disconnect from each other, the way we distance or other each other is one key place to start and actually build real authentic connections. So whether it's in mommy wars or the professional world, you're really actually supporting one another. And that translates to if we're able to support one another, our allyship to our colleagues of color will be that much more trustworthy and authentic. Because then it's, we actually have practice at doing that with, with our own group, right? Like our in-group. And that that's a place where, you know, I have colleagues, um, white colleagues who are also doing anti-racism work well, where my relationships with them are central to my racial equity work. Because then I can be like, oh, this happened. You know, I can check things by them and get their perspective on things. And that's, again, where we don't go at this alone. Sometimes either people in early development or a little bit, you know, like years ago, it would have been seen as like, I want to distance myself from this white person because they said this weird, dumb 
thing. And I want my colleagues, my friends of color to know that I'm not like that, right? Like I'm not that kind of white person or I don't want to be associated with her. And inside of that is just the way that, you know, again, white women try to one up each other or even in the effort to be like a better white ally or do your anti-racism work. We're trying to compete with one another for who's a better white ally. And that is not useful at all either because it's just competition. And that is, again, the way that, you know, internalized sexism is playing out. And that just is super divisive. Even if we're dressing it up with a bunch of social justice lingo, right? It's still not useful and it's harmful to me and it's harmful to the movement. At the most basic level, how do we connect to each other? Mm -hmm. How do we find each other? Well, here's one exercise we did yesterday, and partly this comes from my own pet peeve here in, in this region of, you know, the dance we do, where it's like, oh, hi, how are you? Good. Oh, good. Yeah, how are you? Good, good. Like, in that exchange, nothing's been said, uh-huh. right? Like, uh-huh. it's just like this pleasantries. It's 30 extra seconds or a minute of, like, nothingness before mm-hmm. what we actually are here to do, whatever. It's like, order your coffee or say hello to your friend. And so yesterday, I had folks be in this practice of have an actual answer. It doesn't have to be long. It can be actual just a sentence, but it's something that's true. And I think this thing of like showing ourselves, right, that's one way to start connection is like show, you know, how are you? And it doesn't mean to be an answer that you then are going to disclose a bunch of stuff, right? can still be short. You're still here to do something else, but like have this moment of initial meeting be actually about real connection rather than pleasantries. And what would you say? And, and partly and people came up with stuff and it was so great. This one woman, I said, all right, who wants to practice? And she goes, I do. I said, okay, stand up. And she was like, oh, she got nervous because she didn't know I was going to ask her to stand in front of everyone to say it. And so I went up there and said, okay, great. You know, so how are you? She was good. And she died laughing because she like could, it just came out automatically, right? The good, like, mm-hmm. and what if you're not good, right? And then it's just, those pleasantries are distancing pieces, right? They're ways for us to not actually like know each other. And also that means we don't have practice at sharing. We don't have practice at sharing authentically. The other thing we did yesterday was having people take turns and this is not rocket science and I didn't make it up at all, but that thing of like one person's a listener and one person's a talker and I time them for three minutes and first person goes and shares and then the other person just listens like not the conversation not the oh that happened to me or if the talker ran out of things to say the listener didn't also swoop in to save them because of their listener's own um, awkwardness with silence right and afterwards the one one woman replied that um, gosh it was so nice to just be deeply listened to Mm -hmm. and so that piece of like most of us haven't been listened to enough Right, we're moving fast, we're moving so quick, there's hardly any time. We waste the precious time we have with stupid pleasantries. Mm-hmm. And when we could actually just, you know, have a real moment of connection that would feed us in like a spiral up rather than this like deficit scarcity spiral downward that we all have around I don't have enough time and I'm too busy and I can't ever connect to anybody and you know, traffic is so crazy I can't drive across town to see my good friend or my, that's my downfall. I have a hard time with that one. But so that's just a small example in particular of what we did yesterday that it's not rocket science it's not super complicated. It does take discipline or intention to actually do that stuff. I've had a similar experience with a listening practice Mm -hmm. and I have found, I've done that with groups before and done that in multiple places and find that the amount of effort it takes to just be a good listener is way more tremendous than I would have anticipated. Mm -hmm. And the reward is also much greater. The Mm -hmm. connection feels like a lot deeper when you're not listening, thinking about what you're going to say, what you're going to offer, how your identity is going to be reconfirmed by this interaction, by you reframing it however you want to reframe it. But that when you can just listen deeply, we actually get to find each other. And I think listening deeply is one of the tricks that we can bring when someone says we've offended them. Mm-hmm. So listening deeply to their level of what the distress has been for them. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what happens if somebody tells us they've been offended and maybe they shouldn't have been offended? Or maybe is the offendee always correct? So like, I'll give you a quick example, Mm -hmm. not totally the same context we're talking about in the Mm -hmm. workplace, but you know, my five-year-old will be driving in the car Mm -hmm. and he'll ask me a question and there's traffic coming and going. And um, so I won't necessarily answer him right away. And Mm -hmm. then he'll say, you ignored me on purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, you did this on purpose. You hurt me on purpose. Mm -hmm. And I did not do that on purpose, but how do I listen to what his feeling is without validating? Yes, I did that on Mm -hmm. purpose. How do Mm -hmm. I agree with his feeling and not agree with necessarily the overall situation? Well, I mean, again, like 
he experienced it that way, right? Like, it's more like, oh, I'm sorry I wasn't able to, to respond right away. You know, like, mm-hmm. that would just be true. You probably are sorry you weren't able to respond right yes. away, right? Like, yes. that would be a truth. And then... I mean, it's an interesting, it's not something I think that can be taken at face value because we have to hold context and the bigger picture and the historical framework. So, and that's one part of whiteness is individualism and thinking, well, I just did this one thing and you're getting upset about this one thing and that's never the case, right? We um, have to acknowledge that we are a part of this whole bigger system and a bigger history. And so when someone is having, giving us feedback, if we are lucky enough to get feedback about how someone else experienced us, right? And that is a gift and we might have all different feelings about it. No, I didn't, you know, whatever. Understanding this bigger framework is really, really important. And that's hard when we've been socialized into thinking that we are in a meritocracy, right? And so because we're not, because there is white privilege, because, you know, we, there is patriarchy. That meritocracy and individualism is a part of the myth. It's part of the trick. It's part of what folks with privilege think is true. And it's not true. And everyone else without privilege knows that. And so some of this is like, do we know ourselves? And do we know that our shit stinks? It's essentially the question that's being asked. Do we know that our shit stinks? Because it's so obvious to everybody else. And that thing of most folks, and I will just speak for myself and the people I've I've worked with, have not had enough practice at graciously accepting feedback and graciously leading like with humility and making amends for mistakes. That practicing that regardless if, you know, that really is what happened. It's like, also, who's to say? Because so many times, you know, we'll be like years later, oh, in hindsight, here's what was happening there. There's so much we can't see in the moment because we're all a swarm with feelings. They're a swarm with feelings. It's sort of like, which way's up? It's really hard to know. So when in doubt, I mean, if someone gives me feedback about how I'm showing up or how they're experiencing me, my response is, thanks for letting me know. You know, I'll work on it. Right. Thank you for if you want to tell me more, I'd love to hear. I have to mean it. Right. Because then they might be like, oh, great. Well, let me tell you. (laughs) I can't say that and think, oh, this is a pleasantry that they're not going to take me up on. Mm -hmm. I have to actually mean it. And then I usually go away and I'm like, God, what did happen there? I don't know. I think, you know, I've got to sort it out. Right. And I need other people whose thinking is better than mine, partly because they're outside the situation, who also understand, you know, racism and understand that I'm a good person who has bias and I tried my best and I make mistakes. Right. How do you work that out? What do you do? What's the process? I think what's really important is like which way is power flowing in a situation and identifying that. So if in a retelling of a story, I do coaching with white women and usually they'll be like, well, this person said this and then I did this and I was trying to figure And it's like, okay, well, stop. Who are the people? Race is a dynamic. It's always a dynamic, right? And then are we, is there positional power? Is there hierarchy? Like which way is power flowing in an interaction? And it might be flowing in multiple ways, but we first need to identify that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then it's like, okay, do I even know? That's the first one is, do I know how power was operating in that situation? And was I like colluding with power operating or oppression or hurt? You know, there's many words we could substitute in there. Or was I on the receiving end of it? Or was I also a pawn? And I think going back to really getting specific to the role of white women, you know, I think in our elections, we've seen this. And then we could think about with the suffrage movement, like white women have advocated for themselves to the detriment of women of color. You know, the recipients of sexism and just pawns and patriarchy, we've benefited from white privilege that we've colluded with going along with sexism or being adjacent to power um, so that we can keep our white privilege. I know that's kind of a muddled way of saying that, but I think, you know, thinking about the suffrage movement is a really clear example, right? It's like in 1920, white women got the right to vote and it was much later for women of color. And then currently, you know, white women, I think the numbers are actually really rapidly changing, but I'm curious what they are for right for 2020. I don't know if they've come out yet, but around 77 cents on the dollar and women of color make less and less and less than that. So this thing of like understanding that while we still as white women make less than white men, we do make more than women of color. And like, why is that? Because of like the compounding oppressions that women of color are facing around sexism and racism. If you're enjoying this show, please be sure to share it with your friends and rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And definitely check out our other shows as well. We talk about everything. You should also know that we have a local practice here in Seattle, Washington, where we do actually see patients. And you're welcome to come see us there or schedule for an online consult. 
You can get all the details about our clinic and the services we offer through our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. And you can get all the details about Fleur and all the incredible work that she's doing for local and national organizations at her website, www.fleurlarsenfacilitation.com, F-L-E-U-R-L-A-R-S-E-N, facilitation.com. All right, so let's break it down. White women now, we've talked about how to be a good ally. We've talked about how to manage a little bit of your own feelings. I want to return to that at some point. Mm-hmm. What's the deal with white women as being gatekeepers, mm-hmm. and what do we do with that? How I started my business was partly leaving direct service. We used to work in education. And one thing I was noticing, and it's hard not to notice, is the dominant group in education um, is also the same dominant group in nonprofits and then in healthcare. It's white women. So 80% of white women are teaching today's youth. It's 2.8 million white women. In Washington State, 90% of teachers are white. Um, that does not match our student body. And same healthcare is like 82% are are white women um, in nonprofits, it's almost 90% are white women. However, in all of those industries, it changes when you go up, you know, the higher the position, it starts to turn to men. Um, or, you know, the bigger the organization with a larger budget, you know, in, in nonprofits, the title will go from ED to CEO. Uh, the boards become more mostly male members, board members. So there's this interesting thing that of noticing just what do the numbers tell us? Who's doing the work? Is there a dominant group? And how is the dominant group affecting things? And I had to look at that for myself around my own positions and my own work, um, working with young people and this interesting word of gatekeeper. And it took me a long time to realize that I was a gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. And and it was like, am I literally controlling access to resources? Like, am I giving people food? Like that, the very like transactional, direct, literal. And it's much more expanded than that. It could be access to um, information. It could be access to people. And I think of HR as a big place of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Historically, HR has been there to protect the company and to protect the owners and the investors and uh, the board. And it really hasn't been to protect the people. And so often the person who's there is in the middle, right? And coincidentally, a lot of women are in HR. Mm -hmm. And a lot of HR people don't have positional power. They're not actually at the C-suite level. There are lots of exceptions to that. So I'm sure people are thinking, but I know someone who does. You know, of course, there's always exceptions. And I am talking about in broad, big picture, and and in my experience, right? And so this thing about being a gatekeeper, it could be really thinking about who your networks are. And some of that has to do with like, you know, generational wealth and who have had access to be around. I think more people are gatekeepers than they would think of themselves. And it's really as simple as leveraging your privilege for good and not evil. Like we could think about it as basic as that. Like, oh, I have access to things. What do I have access to? And really claiming being a gatekeeper and not pretending or not running from it. Or, But I'm not, you know, it has these associations and connotations that are bad, which it's true because impacts have been harmful to folks that have been left out of access or, you know, the barriers have been put in place for it. And so gatekeeping, one of the biggest things is just like acknowledge that that's true of the position you hold as a white woman and then maybe literally in your your job or your role or you're standing in the community, for instance. It can be really broad. And I don't mean to have it be vague, right? But it is really broad and far-reaching, especially when we think about it in a cumulative level um, in terms of like the sectors I mentioned. And then just the role white women play in our last elections, we saw this, not voting in their best interest, for instance. When we talk about being a gatekeeper, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about power and privilege because mm-hmm. there are certainly ways like the intersectionality you started talking about. Mm-hmm. There's ways that we do hold power and ways that we are actually powerless. How do we figure out how we are powerful and mm-hmm. what do we do in the directions that we are powerless? Well, I think the second part of your question, I can answer that first. I mean, that's where the healing work really needs to happen for each of us. Like everyone's been hurt by oppression. That's true. And some people's lives are more targeted for destruction than others, right? The impacts of oppression are are worse for those that are on the recipient. And so one way I think about accountability as a white woman is heal the hurts I've had around sexism, right? So that I can really show up for racial equity better. And then this piece around like knowing my power, knowing like the influence I can have. And I was just talking to someone around, you know, her PTA and like PTAs are, that's a hot issue. Mm -hmm. I'm not a mom. And so I'm not in that world, but I have lots of friends who are thinking about that. And 
the power that PTAs have to affect a lot of kids is huge. And especially when we think about the intersection of gender, race, and class, who has time to be on a PTA, right? Who has access to, and especially, you know, PTA fundraisers and all that. I think it's a really telling issue that, you know, A, our schools are funded by property taxes, which is a form of segregation here, given gentrification currently and historical redlining. And then B, that all the PTAs are like, they don't, it's not like there's one pot of money, right? Every school has their own money. And so then, of course, lower income neighborhoods might have less money generated from their PTAs. And who has time to be on a PTA if you're not working like two or three jobs? How would you ever do it, right? I know that's a meandering way of answering your question. I mean, those are all the thoughts I think about of the conversations I'm having with other white women and really to like move money to move power. It's a myth that we don't have power, right? Like sexism's real, patriarchy's real, and we still have a lot of power, right? And we have more than we think we do. So that's what I mean by like the myth is in our mind. Like the damage of sexism has had on most impact has had on most women is thinking we don't have power. And so then we're not acknowledging our white privilege, right? And this sort of like hiding behind that. I call it the whams, the what about me syndrome, right? But like, what about me? And like, you know, how hard I've had it or whatever. And all of that is true. It's really a both and. And with that, what about me syndrome? I, it feels like all of us have been marginalized by our culture. And I would say our, we've talked about this in other podcasts, but we live in a lonely, isolated social structure. We go to work, we make our widget, we come home. We often don't have the connections that we're supposed to have mm-hmm. in our nuclear families, in our houses by ourselves. We're supposed to have aunties and uncles and grandparents and cousins and people to watch babies and cook meals together. And we really don't have the culture anymore that supports that. So and a lot of what you just described is, you know, historical aspects of the American dream, which was really the white American dream, right? And so collective communities or other communities that are not white, that hasn't been their orientation to like setting up social structures. And so understanding that, especially even thinking about, you know, do we know our own cultural heritage, our own ethnic heritage, and what our ancestors lost or gave up to be white, to assimilate, to gain that privilege and be distanced from. And so now, the, you know, the conversation around immigrants now is really hot and contentious in the fact that we are a nation of immigrants, except for the Native folks who have already been here, and then the folks from Africa who were enslaved and not in choice to come here. But it brings up a good point as you're talking about it, like the American dream was really to like stop being bothered by other people. And now we're so not bothered that we're desperate and lonely. Yeah. And we actually don't know how to be with each other. And that's a product of oppression. And that's specifically like the individualism of white culture, white dominant culture. Here's some that I think about a lot. I really want to do a whole podcast that's just called What to Do with Feelings yeah. or a movie like What to Do with mm-hmm. Feelings. So mm-hmm. what are some things that a person with feelings who might be listening to this and might feel anxious in this conversation mm-hmm. or might mm-hmm. feel angry or might feel confused or might feel scared? Mm-hmm. What do you do with those feelings? Feel them. <laughs> um, my colleague Michelle yesterday brought up a picture of this buffalo and she told this kind of, the, it's almost, it's a true, it's real to buffalo, but it, we almost called it a parable. That buffalo when there's storms, cows run and buffalo turn and face and run into the storm. And this piece that, you know, really the only way is through. And so to feel the feelings. And so all the numbing things we do, even in the guise of doing the work that I do to, you know, impact people's lives, you know, burnout is real. And so this piece of like needing to stay in it for the long haul and it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so feeling our feelings is a way to sustain. It's a way to stay in it. It's a way to stay connected to myself and to other people. So, you know, whether that's in therapy or somatics or, you know, going to 12 step, like whatever. Whatever it is, intentionally doing that. And you're sharing with friends and colleagues, like, this is a big feeling I'm having. And even knowing that, the self-awareness to know I'm having a feeling right now. And partly that's also the emotional intelligence skills that's really necessary to be accountable for your impact. Like, oh, I'm really triggered, so I can't even hear the feedback I'm getting right now because I'm so flooded, right? We know the nervous system's like taken over. We can't learn when we're flooded. We need at least 15, 20 minutes, right? Like to let it all cool down. And so all of that self-awareness to be like, I want to hear this can we come back to this or, you know, like whatever, but feeling the feelings is foundational to be able to do navigate all the things. And what do we do with feelings at work? I think one thing I'm noticing a lot right now is our generational differences, like young folks, millennials, and even 
like younger, younger millennials, folks under 30, they are fired up and the kind of workplace environment that they want to work is not the one we have right now. And it's not the one that historically has been, you know, people have been socialized into. So top-down leadership, decisions behind closed doors, none of that is fine. And so we have a lot of generational differences and young people are showing and having more feelings at work. And what would have been considered or is considered by a lot of folks, especially over 35 or over 40, as inappropriate, that's inappropriate at work, you have young people who are asking hard questions. They're talking about how their feelings at work. Um, They're wanting space for it. They're wanting sanctioned space for it. Or they're wanting meetings to be more transparent or decisions to be more transparent and all this stuff that's really pushing and asking for a different style of leadership. And so one big thing in the work I'm doing right now is seeing that even before we start talking about racial equity, if we have a huge age range in the room, we are having really different conversations Mm -hmm. because even how to talk about it is where people are having different expectations. So to that point of to do this work or to to live our values of equity at the workplace will mean doing it's going to get messy because we're unlearning a style of leadership that has gotten us here but isn't going to take us to the next like generation of where we want to be. And so in that unlearning it's confusing. People have ideas about what's appropriate, right? And work is not therapy. Right. So being clear, it's not. But we're also going to be surfacing things that maybe historically weren't appropriate and quote unquote to talk about. And there's this piece of like I've noticed with my clients and and I I say this as a a broad sweeping statement based on my experience that and this is I'll say it as an organization, but it can be applied to a human. So person. But an organization's ability to engage in healthy conflict correlates to retaining staff of color. And what I mean by that is often people who raise an issue, especially, again, this is based in place here in this region, if they raise an issue and it's not in the quote-unquote appropriate way, if their tone's off, if they're too upset, it will be about how they raised it rather than the content. Or they will slowly get iced out of an organization or company. Or they'll quit because it's falling on deaf ears. This thing around conflict and communication, skilling up around that will help us be able to feel our feelings at work. What do we do when our leadership of our organization has no interest in this or doesn't see the value? Mm-hmm. And when people are still rooted kind of in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, thinking that we're still trying to just pay the rent and that equity is like a luxury we can't afford, what do you do with that? You know, people are moving jobs more often, right? So retention and attrition, it's costly to have to keep rehiring people. So it absolutely affects the bottom line. Like we can make the case easy peasy. Harvard Business Review has articles up the wazoo about how having an inclusive culture or creating a culture of belonging that involves feedback, that involves buy-in, that involves leadership that's responsive to what is wanted and needed in the moment will absolutely improve your bottom line. So if someone needs the case there, there's tons of data and information. You know, humans are meant to learn and grow. And part of oppression makes us less adaptable to be able to do that. So one, again, making the case for feeling your feelings is a way to get access to our thinking, right? So feeling it so that we can keep learning, so that we can be like, oh, this situation is really different than what I've done, been doing for the last 20 years. Maybe there's something to it. It's not all things being equal, right? If we're talking about folks of color, this is slightly different. If we're talking about white folks, if we're talking about person in position of power. So we have to really contextualize how power is operating when we're thinking about what if somebody doesn't want to do it or or you even said the privilege to do equity work. And I think that's really true for folks of color. The choice is absolutely there. For white folks, we have the privilege to opt out all the time, right? And so this thing of really living our values in action means committing to not opting out just because it gets hard or just because we have these feelings of embarrassment or whatever comes up. Otherwise, we're just not in integrity with ourselves if, if we espouse that this is something we want, right? And I remember reading some about Robin D'Angelo's. Can you talk about her story, who she is and her story a little bit? Robin D'Angelo does work here in Seattle and nationally. She Her body of work is around white fragility. And she's written several books that are phenomenal. And she really got her start in training and in academia doing critical race theory and white pedagogy. And she does a lot around 
noticing after training, after training, after training, white folks being incensed at even any feedback about that they might have done something from their stemming from their bias. And so white fragility, the inability to engage in or hear anything about your own race or about you as a white person. And then her body work really extends to like looking at white folks are with white folks and like we're more segregated now in some ways than we were a long time ago. Um, I think that's certainly true in this city in Seattle, particularly because of our recent gentrification and who's being pushed out. She talks a lot about openly about her story of being raised poor as a white woman and this thing around how class was such a big experience and going without that made it hard to see how she could possibly have any privilege as a white person when her family was struggling, right? So she has a ton of videos on her website because I don't, I think I'll be able to do justice to her whole story, but she, she, there's a lot of information you can get about it. And that thing of like, well, it's not that your life has been easy because you're white, but it just hasn't been hard because you're white. Right, like the privilege because you're white, yeah. so that that's mm-hmm. not what made your life hard. Yeah, and yeah. it has made it hard for others mm-hmm. who are not white. Yeah, so you can still be poor. You can still have abuse and trauma in your that's, history. You yeah. can still have homelessness and assault, mm-hmm. but those things were not because of your race. Yeah, this world capitalism doesn't care for people, right? So even white people have a hard time inside of capitalism, and hopefully that soundbite won't be taken out of context. <laughs> For anyone listening that you know really just this thing of that we don't have um, the u.s in particular isn't a, a society that cares for people you know when we think about different models of you know the nordic scandinavian model which isn't perfect their stuff around immigration is not you know without problems but in particular they have policy that cares for people even beyond just being capitalism it's how we practice capitalism yeah where yeah. you don't have to share you don't have to take care of your workers you don't have yeah. to see anybody as family except right. for who you decide right we always have rousing conversations about race and sexism and different social mm-hmm. oppressions and how they work mm-hmm. in uh, companies and organizations can you just tell us a little bit about what you see what you do why you do it I work across sector so mm-hmm. uh, my while well, my backgrounds in education and nonprofits I my clients for Range from corporate foundations, tech, um, government, education, mm-hmm. and kind of everyone in between. And one thing I'm finding really interesting right now is what is sector specific? You know, mm-hmm. tech has its particular issues, education has its particular things, corporate has its particular things. And what is across the board? Mm-hmm. What am I seeing that are just human trends based on where we're at sociopolitically right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also placing this in region, like really basing it in place. Here in Seattle, I grew up here, I can speak to the social waters we're swimming in a particular way Mm -hmm. and how that contrasts or supports what's happening nationally. Mm -hmm. And so just as a tidbit here, the thing I'm noticing that is true across sector, that's just people issues, is really around conflict and communication. Mm -hmm. And that those are prereqs to even broaching or doing equity well. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of places here in particular, Pacific Northwest is known for our communication (laughs) norms around passive aggressive, conflict adverse. We dance around topics. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of pretense. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of saving face. there's a lot of jargon, especially Mm -hmm. in equity or racial equity work. One part about that is like, you know, words and terms are being updated or used differently. And so it's really good to have a growth mindset and be updating yourself on like, what are the appropriate terms or words to use now? And we don't want to use jargon to hide where we don't really know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I've been noticing in particular on conflict in this region is in communication, it's really hard to manage for something if you can't even name it. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get into some challenges here when people want to talk about racial equity or do something around equity or live their values, Mm -hmm. which might be around community or caring for people. And yet we can't really have a generative conversation about it because there's a social contract about not talking about hard things. Mm-hmm. And so those are some prereqs to even doing the work that I found with that's a true across sector, across industry with all the people I work with right now. All right. So give us some calls to action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a list that was co-created by some colleagues of color of mine and, and Michelle just listen. Um, and then the woman of color I'm in deep relationship with is a partner Ray. And so future for us is a phenomenal platform for advancing women of color in the workplace that you can follow and check them out. But number one, I think about a lot around amplifying people's voices and this piece of amplifying folks of color's voice in whatever way that means, like either in a meeting or on social media. And also this, I only donate to 
organizations led by folks of color. So I'm really moving my money to be in line with my values. There's a great resource called intentionallist.com where you can look up POC owned businesses, people of color, or um, it's also, it's POC women and LGBT owned. So, you know, marginalized folks and this really thinking about moving your money in all the small and large ways to be in alignment with your values. So I think your voice and your money are really, really important calls to action. And it's, it's really real. Like I get hope because this work is overwhelming. It can be really like hard to, to see your way through, but I get hope when at the end of trainings, for instance, you know, 25 people are going around the circle saying what they're in a commitment to doing. And if, right, I'm banking on if people actually go do all that stuff, there's can be some movement, some impact. And then the other thing is, is really when I'm working, you know, thinking a lot of times people are thinking about relationships and when in doubt, being an ally is really about showing that you're trustworthy. And so following someone's lead and I bring my critical mind. I'm not a doormat, right? I'm clear that being an ally is not rolling over and that given the way I'm socialized to think that, you know, internalized racial superiority is a part of white privilege, following my colleagues of color lead on things. I'm going to share what I think. I'm going to give my perspective, but the buck stops that I'm going to follow their lead, right? So amplify their voice, follow their lead, move money to move power are like three big areas around what you can do on a daily level with people you don't know. And then obviously with all the people you know or are in relationship with. And I would just add what you've already said as a fourth, which is to feel your feelings all the way through to look at your own intention versus the impact you're actually having on the world and doing the hard work of feeling shitty about when you make mistakes, Mm -hmm. expect that you're going to make mistakes and plan for um, correcting them. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to share with our guests about? Yeah. I mean, all of this, you know, especially around the feelings part, we can't wait until we feel comfortable or competent or confident. We can't wait for the perfect moment or the perfect setup. It really, all of this is trial and error. And this is living your values in action, right? Embodying what you say you're about. All of it's trial and error. You're going to say stuff and you're going to like, it's going to go however it goes. And then you get information. And I think that thing of like, just anything's better than nothing, right? So rocking back on our heels and the passiveness of this region really is a disservice, right? People's lives are actually impacted by the lack, by the inaction that folks with who are gatekeepers have can leverage resources and make real impact. So all of it's trial and error and you don't have to wait until you feel confident or competent to do something. I just want to say that I'm really appreciating that this conversation about how white women handle our experience of racism, sexism, classism is not dependent on anything that people of color do. So often when we think of racism, we think about the recipient of the oppression. And I do think that because that is not as white people and not people of color, I think it's a great conversation that we're having today about our role in this system. And to your point of like really this piece of that, it's not people of color don't have to teach us about why there is racism or what's happening or even to prove the impacts of our actions were racist. That's not on them. And so some a really phenomenal writer who's here in the region, Ijioma Olu, her book is So You Want to Talk About Race, and it's a phenomenal read, and it's definitely a place to start if you're wanting to like just think more about your own role in this. And she lists a number of calls to action at the end of the book, specifically for white folks. Um, and there's a bunch of resources on my website, not to draw traffic there, but just because there's a list there. And I think it's really great to read and center people of voices people of color voices in your media and so a podcast to listen to is called Seeing White and it's phenomenal it's uh, put on by On Scene Radio so those are definitely some resources to check out that are both folks of color and white folks well that is a great place to close our podcast for today thank you so much Fuller for being here we really appreciate your insight your wisdom your experience you've definitely given us some good tools to work with we really appreciate you yeah thanks for having me it's fun to talk about to our listeners thank you for listening today with Fleur Larson. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Come find us at Center for Healing Neurology. You can get more information from and about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com, and more about Fleur at her website, fleurlarsenfacilitation.com, F-L-E-U-R-L-A-R-S-E-N. And feel free to come see us in person at our Seattle-based clinic or attend any of Fleur's upcoming trainings for the public. Or if this seems like she'd be a good fit for your organization, 
organization, either at the C-suite level, at the HR level, or at the, the staff level, please feel free to contact her. Please be sure to share the show with your friends. We welcome your rating and your review wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together, and we are committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliot Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.